Good morning, world. Or should I say hello, world? It's me again. Yesterday, I discarded the podcast because I definitely was too lost in my mind. Doesn't happen often. That I I throw away something. And I still have the recordings. But I was just upset. And I can tell you a little bit more about that. I was a little bit angry with myself for being lazy, negligent, complacent, stupid, and all these other bad things. So, time to kick some butt. Yeah, I'm going to try and not do these long pauses when I'm talking, but I can't really help it. It's just how slow my brain is. I just woke up, made myself some coffee, and now I'm out for my walk. Let's have a sip of this Joe here. Mmm. Now the world seems much brighter. Alright then, let's get to this. So, I really want to share a bunch of things with you guys. But I also want to add value. And just passing on stuff from other people doesn't really add value. But where I can add value is, well, for one, I learned a lot of languages. Well, I learned German, and I know some Albanian, but I definitely got a good ear for things. Even if I'm not great at speaking Albanian, I know a lot of words, and I definitely have heard and expose myself to lots of language that I don't understand. But I pick up on auditory cues and I hear things in the mumbles. So I guess you could say that I've developed 
a tiny bit. of a more relaxed attitude towards auditory input of language. I don't just discard stuff. I kind of keep it in my junk pile. I might be a hoarder, you say. A magpie or a raven with a big pile of junk. So where I can add value, I think, is, for example, listening to someone who's not a native speaker and really helping you understand what the hell he's saying. But when the guy's a genius and he's talking about things that are really profound, it also comes down to knowledge of what he's talking about and I can't really give you that for Mr. Vladimir um, this Soviet scientist who invented statistical machine learning who I listened to the interview with Lex recently and even though that Lex claims to be a Russian um, he didn't offer to rewrite some of the statements that what's his name was making in bad grammar that Vladimir was making um, maybe that's because of his good form but um, I'm really going to take a crack at this interview, even though I'm super scared of the material. But let me tell you what I learned from it. Basically, he said, and I explained this to my wife, and my wife said, well, he's just an anti-spiritualist, you know, hardcore Russian. You have to put it in the context that they don't believe in, they're not romantic. And they don't believe in spiritualism. They're very materialistic. So that's also the background there. Yeah, I am up to speed now. I just walked up this hill. Which might also be a reason why I'm breathing heavy. But I'm walking pretty fast. So. The guy is very anti-intuition. And he's saying that intuition won't help you. in mathematics. You have to do the work. And that's also kind of what Wolfram is saying as well. I really had the revelation about computational equivalence. I listened to the first interview with Wolfram. 
and also Lex. He asked him all of these great questions and he went over all this stuff in his first interview. And when the second interview came, he acted like he didn't know and he was asking the same questions again. So Lex might be a smart guy, but I don't know if he's taking exact notes like I am trying to really understand this, what Wolfram is saying, or if he's just being a good interviewer and getting the guy to explain things again. I don't know. <clears throat> he does do great shows, though. And he's a very smart guy, so... I did have this vision, though, um, of something completely different that I wanted to share. And I'm just going to share it right now because this is the stream of random, and we do get to switch topics. And I do control the airwaves here, so you're just going to have to deal with it, okay? But. <clears throat> I was watching, I was watching the Peaky Blinders, season four, and the guy has a showdown with the um, Italian guy, who's actually a Jewish guy who played the piano, and in the show he's like, ha ha ha, even the Jewish people are pretending to be Italians, so I thought that was kind of funny. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure he... Well, he played the Jew. How's this? He played the Jew in um, in the piano. I don't know what he actually is. I'm pretty sure he's Jewish, though. Yeah, we're on that stretch of the road. But anyway, there's a showdown between <clears throat> Tommy and Luca. Tommy being the Birmingham gypsy guy, and Luca being the um, Sicilian guy, played by a Jewish guy, maybe. And uh, they kill off all of each other's men and then they're like okay we're gonna have the final like showdown right and they just stand there looking at each other staring at each other in the eyes in like a wild west type situation and um And then finally the police uh, actually 
just when they were about ready to start shooting at each other, the police uh, break it up. They interrupt their uh, little standoff. But um, I was just thinking uh, about the uh, these endless loops and endless girdle functions and um, I just had an intuition that maybe when these two bosses confronted each other that they kind of got stuck in an endless loop of fighting kind of like imagine if two um, armies lined up and the generals were just sending all their men to war just dying on the front for like years like Verdun World War One, and this is all set in the in the in the carnage of World War One. the guy was traumatized PTSD from World War One. Just chasing some deer here. I got within five feet of him. Now she's coming back. But if you think about the endless wars that are waged between peoples, where they never seem to stop. That's kind of like the standoff, why it like the time freezes and slows down. And um, it might be a dramatic element of the movie, but I'm just trying to think, I just think, I had a little intuition here. See, I have my intuitions and I trust them. I don't discount all my intuitions as being spiritualist. So I'm just gonna let it out here, okay? Because this is like one of the few places that I get to record them and publish them. So you're welcome to join me. I'm gonna stop making apologize, apologies here. So what I'm thinking is, <clears throat> And these indecidability issues, you're going into an endless loop. And what if the indecidability is the endless loop caused by confrontation with another force? Right? Like when two fronts meet each other and are pushing against each other. That's when you get into the issues of weird machines, you know. When the attacker comes to attack your software, 
um, they're going to look for a weird machine that they can exploit that's confronting you. And then you're going to respond, hopefully, and change it. <clears throat> if you can detect it. And that creates this feedback loop. But what if the feedback loops become infinite? What if they span multiple timelines? If you look at the quantum theory from Wolfram, he's saying there are all these possibilities. Well, what if when these two guys are confronting each other, they are attacking each other on multiple sides and multiple timelines and multiple quantum possibilities that are evaporating because they're still there in the end because somehow they're transcending the single thread of being and something else is there holding them up But it's just a movie. But this is kind of the vision that I've had. My intuition. 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 I gotta look up what that word, where that word comes from. A tuition is learning, and intuition, I guess, is an internal learning. something you taught yourself so if your opponent is math or the world or the chaos or even another powerful person then you will be stuck and if they put up a fight you'll be stuck and this is kind of where we get into the whole idea of complexity and appropriate complexity so do you have the appropriate level of complexity to match your opponent or the system that you're faced off with now I'm looking at this LLVM and listening to the podcast and he said that the um,
he said that the uh, compiler writers that the Linux systems are still being compiled with GCC. And I'm thinking I'm thinking that um, the GCC can actually subsume parts well, from a license perspective, you could take the GCC, which is GPL'd, and you could create a derived work that subsumes LLVM, which is more open, and create a derived work that combines both of them, which would be licensed under the GPL. Not that the GCC people would do that, because they require you to assign the copyright to the SFF, SFSF, the Free Software Foundation of Installment that he found, which whoever else owns the GCC copyright at this point. So they have a different licensing model as well. You can't just, you need to require, you'd require signatures from all the people who submitted to LLVM to do that. So it would have to be something new. But it would be possible. Okay. But that's also like a standoff between those two systems. Now I'm thinking that there are definitely places where they could both benefit from working together. Or the one really does just replace the other. pretty complicated problem. I'm jumping all over this place. <clears throat> so let's um, get back to Vladimir. So he's saying you have to do the work. You cannot use your intuition to understand these mathematical parts. saying that historically intuitions have been false and um, I think he's kind of describing what Wolfram was describing with the um, irreducibility he said with rule 33 <clears throat> he's put up prizes for people who can determine if it is going to return, continue forever or not. Now, on a side note, I started to research if you can describe a um, 
Turing, not a Turing machine, a uh, if you can des describe a um, Game of Life, Conway's Game of Life machine, I'm fine. Um, If you can describe a cellular automata as a uh, a girdle-like function, like is there like a brain fuck uh, implementation of it? And I see there is a uh, a funge, which looks very much like some uh, weird language. Like a one-liner. So I was thinking, if um, if this rule thirty-three uh, he's saying that the cellular autonoma are actually um, Turing complete. So, I was wondering if we could encode it as a Turing um, type program using one of the, um, like a girdle number type functions. And uh, could we actually create a uh, a simplified implementation of a given rule um, this rule 33 could we implement that as some kind of algorithm directly that could we transform this uh, single rule 33 into an actual program that runs just on a Turing machine. So I thought that would be a good thought experiment. And I looked around, I couldn't find too much in that direction. I did find hundreds of implementations of these um, cellular autonoma, but I didn't really see one. So that might be a to-do for the future, something to look into as a game or a puzzle. And uh, my intuition is that we could reduce the base case to a set of code and then each level of the algorithm could be maybe seen as either a pending code or a pending data in a certain way, following a certain pattern.
So, and then could you implement a rule 33 on top of a rule 33? So when it runs, it can execute arbitrary things, so it can also execute itself. Can you create the endless loop of... But I suppose that would be a much bigger setup. You would have to actually create this humongous setup. And then you could do it again. You could say, well, I have another implementation of rule 33 that runs on the implementation that runs on the implementation that runs on the Turing function that runs on the Gödel number and you could just start nesting these things but they would start creating a humongous number because in order to In order to do all that, you need a big setup. So the setup gets larger and larger and larger, just like a Minecraft comp compilation. <clears throat> just like the uh, dumping of the dumping of the dumping of your Haskell into Haskell. The expanding of the descriptions also gets larger and larger and larger. It's like this is a program that if evaluated will produce a program that if evaluated will produce a program that if evaluated will produce a program like a quine. <clears throat> so I guess we're talking about things that expand or contract. These are just rewrite rules. So I guess you just need to create a program that can describe itself and then rewrite itself to run on itself. That's a rewrite rule. So, okay, so we can go into these endless possibilities, but see, this is where our intuition fails us, because after a certain point, these become so complicated, we actually have to execute them to, um, <clears throat> to really get to the bottom, and it's going to cost us a lot of time. Okay, now speaking about time, I have bitten the bullet and I I got my um, Haskell running in a notebook I tweeted a picture of that <clears throat> and
and um, basically that allows you to um, add code in just like GHCI um, it saves your data between executions it's basically like GHCI but it saves your code as well and you can go back and reevaluate things so the good thing is that um, when you're done prototyping you actually have something that you can compile So I'm really happy with that. And I came up with a new plan based upon my listening to Wolfram of how I want to implement my rewrite rules. So basically, a um, compiler graph it's a hypergraph of some kind where the starting position is pairs key value pairs like a dictionary and we will transform this over time to something more meaningful eventually be able to generate code from it. So instead of using Haskell types for everything, going to allow for just these pairs to exist well let's say instead of trying to create structures for everything we're going to allow a little bit of ambiguity And um, since we're not in C, like my whole idea was like we could create a nice type structure uh, that would describe everything perfectly. And um, maybe we can do that over time. Maybe we can't. Because we're going to get more and more data. And the more and more data we get, 
the harder the job will be to make everything pretty and nice. Unless we employ some kind of neural networks to help us, we're going to be over, always overwhelmed with the amount of data that we're going to get that needs more structuring in every layer. Is some new input from a new person who put a lot of work into it to write that code and just to understand that code and make it pretty to crack the function that's encoded in it will take time so now we could also just say we'll distribute this as a piece of software and people can use it to help crack systems Well, what would help? Well, I like the hypergraph idea. And if we see the hypergraph, let's just say We've got one graph that's a file system. And that has the, um, the characters or bits of the file. And then we group those bits together to create words. And if it's a binary system, would have a different grouping than if it's ASCII. So we have different interpreters that would help us interpret. And just to be warned, a file could very well be as complicated and be Turing complete and self-descriptive and all that. Right, so there's an endless amount of complexity there. I'm just going to flag that. But we have the code that decodes these files. We have the code that decodes the bits and bytes. And every single function that runs, every single function that executes will read that file and it will read something at a certain position. And then we're going to create a graph entry saying that this function over here read this byte over there. And then when it copies that data into memory, We don't actually need to copy the bytes, we can just reference them until they're changed.
you look at LTrace, you'll see a lot of copying of file data. Look at this groundhog. Lots of copying of file data. So as we step through this program, we're either copying information from the input stream, which is going to tag that, or we're creating variables to hold them. And I just want to audit like where each byte comes from, or we have memory that's in the code, strings that have been copied into the code. So let's just say we have the um, data segment of the program. Now let's pull that whole data segment of the program into a graph and the text segment. Okay. And we decode all of that. So we know for each register, for each pointer, what we're looking at. Let's pull in the debugger information. <clears throat> so now we're in the debugger. We can interpret all this information. And we have an audit record that says for each byte of the file where it came from. So as its base state, it comes from, let's say, a git commit from outside. And we can talk all about different versions of the software and different versions of these trees and how they interrelate with each other. It's really complicated. Let's not get lost. So we're chugging along and we're reading through this file. We're copying stuff into memory. We might be naming variables. And as we go, we have the source code. We have the different representations of trees and so forth in the program. We have the actual binary. Now, if this is a simple crep that we're running and we're just tagging memory, right? Here's a regex, tag the memory that matches this regex, okay? So it's going to read a file and write a file. But I want the audit records to show for every line in this file, where did that data come from? And instead of having two files, I can have one file. Which is the file and then some pattern that matches, that selects a subset of that other file. So it's just a subset function, a selector, a range 
Now if I apply a said function that changes it, it's going to create a new file. But the bytes that are read will go through a transformation. And we can record exactly what that transformation was. Where the transformation came from and also where the bytes came from. So, well, first time I get to see the Trenton police driving around here. So, we see the source of the transformation, we see source of the data that's kept and the resulting output that shows this part of the file came from here and this part of the file came from here so let's say we merge like a zipper function would show This part came from A, this part came from B. Now in a purely functional system, you don't need audit records per se, because everything is completely reproducible. So you can actually compose everything like that. thinking about all this. And I was also thinking about matching up two processes where the kernel of one output of one writes to the input of the other. And we can connect those two processes using this introspection system. And really, we're talking about a kernel function here. Because it's the kernel that connects two functions together. It's the kernel which knows who writes to what. So all of this auditing could be done at the kernel level. And I think it's the kernel that could also monitor data flow. It could actually show where the data is coming from and where it's going.
kernel could do that. Now, getting inside of someone else's code, understanding what it does, that's another story. But let's just say Let's just say that uh, we have a, um, okay, second time the police drive by. Let me make sure this is recording. Yeah, it's recording. 49 minutes of blathering. Another 10 minutes. Another 20 minutes before. Another 10 minutes before the sink shuts off automatically. So... So the kernel could do this, and um, if we execute code step by step, line by line, really like a virtual machine, let's say we create an augmented virtual machine, um, that would have also access to, and okay, Let's just say that the augmented virtual machine doesn't have access to the source code. Okay? And let's just say you know what binaries you're running. Okay. And it would be up to you to figure out in a second phase. But the virtual machine will say, will track. I guess we're getting into memory management here. It'll track what pieces of memory, kind of like Valgrind, what pieces of memory are allocated by what <clears throat> instructions and where they came from. Right? What files are written or read? what instructions operated on them. So let's just say we have a full registered trace of every instruction that ran. Along with see this is where we don't need the full memory of the system yet because the full memory of the system can be derived from the previous memory of the system. So we just need a pointer to the state of the memory at that time, not the full memory. 
So we're going to create an audited transactional memory system. Sounds like fun. bytecode or a machine code interpreter that's capable of running simple programs. And also stores the transactional state of the transactional state of the memory. Now yesterday when I was walking in Hopewell, I didn't tell you guys about my tall walk yesterday. And I think I'll just tack on, at the end of this show, I'll just tack on my recordings from yesterday for anyone who cares to listen. <clears throat> and I'm also kind of scared about my podcast getting deleted. So I'm going to start working on archiving it automatically. <clears throat> on to archive that work. So whenever I upload a show, I'll have a system that downloads it and pushes it to archive.org. also add in value as well as we go we can improve the value of that Some weird people walking here. Time for a different route. Maybe something's going down. So, yeah, yesterday I had a, um, at least three encounters with the police on my morning walk. When you go to uh, certain towns that used to be run by right-wing radical 
people who wanted to overthrow the United States with violence and turn us into a fascist state. Headquartered here in New Jersey with ambitions for presidency. And I definitely have to do my research onto that. But sometimes you say something is too close to home. You know? Maybe they're still there. Maybe they would retaliate. So, kind of scary stuff. But let's not to get too scared. Let's get back to the uh, issue at hand. So let's just imagine that we have a execution engine that has full knowledge of everything. And really, why do we have to execute binaries? Why can't we just execute or interpret the source code? Right? Like, after a certain point, um, the patterns that are being executed are generated by the compiler so that we could just retract um, the compile stage and then execute. Look at that, a black squirrel. Got two gray squirrels and a black squirrel. Now that might be a good episode photo. So yeah, in the end, the question becomes, why do we even output something to assembly code and then read it back in if you have the source code? You know? you have all this information, why not use it? Yeah, so it looks like we lost the last two minutes. So let me just try and recap that. If you know the source code and you know what's going to be uh, executed, we don't need to emit a binary, so to say, from a compiler to then interpret it with a machine, we actually know what's going to be executed. We can augment or instrument that binary with information. So that's one thing. 
so we can do it in user space as well. But we really don't want to start recompiling everyone's code. We want it to just work. Which I'm th and we also don't want all the data, we just want some of the data. So I think a perf system, which will allow you to sample little bits of memory as needed, It'll inject code to run in the compiler. That would be awesome. And it's funny that the perf will use LLVM or JIT to compile. Those are squirrels making those strange sounds. They say that the word squirrel is the sound that the squirrels make when they see humans. It's a warning sound. They make different sounds to each other. So, yeah, so these are my thoughts. I see, you see I am getting kind of lost, but I'm not getting stalled out. So to get back to Wolfram and this Vladimir guy, and I might just start clipping Vladimir for you because I think I can add value in decoding what he said and interpreting it, and um, you know, if I don't understand it in terms of mathematics, I'll just try and explain what I heard, and then um, we can together do the research. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to resolve everything. And um, as he said, Resolving um, We don't understand everything Sometimes we have to do it And I think uh, Wolfram is also right about that We can't Intuit we can't use our intuition to understand what's going to happen because our intuition is simple. It's an oversimplification. So we have to use the most, the right amount of complexity to attack the right complexity problems. And intuition might give you an idea to start with. He said axioms can be intuitive, but they're also honed over the millennia. Axioms represent intuition, and the rest is just hard work. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder if uh, squirrels get poison ivy. <clears throat> I should hope not. So, 
So basically, Wolfram was saying that the computational equivalency means that you can translate one into another and they're therefore actually equivalent. And that you can't skip over the execution of things and be lazy. So that's it. So I think we're going to um, get into uh, Vladimir's uh, podcast now, and I'm going to um, I'm going to clip it and analyze it for you because I think. His audio is so bad that we actually have to analyze each word and each sentence and try and make sense of it. And uh, maybe just for my own um, benefit, but maybe you'll benefit from this too, because I think he had some very deep and profound things to say. All right then. Let's do it. So now you're going to get a taste of Vlad Vapnik, and um, he says, we don't know all the factors, and because we don't know all the factors, God, um, he thinks that God is playing dice, but we should discover it. And then he says that there's two philosophies of looking at the world. One is instrumentalism where we make models and predictions, theories and predictions. And one is realism, where we look at what actually happens. At least that's, I didn't understand the last word that he said, but that's basically my interpretation. Does God play dice? We don't know some factors. And because we don't know some factors, which could be important, it looks like good play dice, but we, don't. we should describe it. In philosophy, they distinguish between two positions, positions of instrumentalism, where you're creating theory for prediction, and position of realism, where you're trying to understand what God did. Okay. So clip two, he's going to say, He's going to give some more examples. So he's going to say that instrumentalism is when you just... Well, he says the first example is um, realism, where the rule is valid everywhere and all times, and that it's God's law, and God created the universe. I don't know why he calls that realism. And then instrumentalism, 
is when it's just being used to predict the position. It's a theory that uses, is used to predict something in the future. So that's what he calls instrumentalism. Um, and there's one word I didn't understand in there, but I think that's the uh, summary. Good morning. If you have some mechanical laws, what is that? Is it law which true always and everywhere? Or it is law which allow you to predict position of moving element? The, what, what you believe? You believe that it is God's law, that God created the world which obey to this physical law? Yeah. Or it is just law for predictions? So here again, we get into the distinction. He's saying the, <laughs> the realist is um, the one who believes that God created these rules, created reality, I suppose. I'm just trying to wrap my head around why he's calling the realist someone who believes in God. But I guess he's saying that the idea of reality is some kind of theological concept. Well, that's interesting. Um, and the instrumentalist is the one who sees only predictions. And which yeah. one is instrumentalism? For predictions. predictions. If you believe that this is law of God, and it's always true everywhere, that means that you're realist. So you're trying to, re to really understand, understand the God thought. Okay, so he's going to say now that instrumentalism is making predictions, and that's what most people do with machine learning models. But if you want to understand how God plays dice, if God plays dice, and when he plays dice, what's the conditional probability of a one or a two being thrown, that is realism. Um, but that's not the goal, and that's not needed in um, making predictions. So, <clears throat> do we want to understand the underlying probabilities of things happening? That's realism, I suppose. And it's funny, because I had to listen to this a bunch of times. He says, this. Dice, yes. So I hope I'm adding some value here and trying to interpret what this guy's saying because he's super, super smart. It's just, imagine him being your professor, you know, being at the whiteboard. It's like, oh my God. So the way you see the world is, is as an instrumentalist? You know, Perhaps I'm or? working for some models, model of uh, machine learning. So in this model, we can see uh, setting, and we try to solve, resolve the setting, to solve the problem. And you can do it in two different ways, from the point of view of instrumentalism, and that's what everybody does now, because uh, they say that goal of machine learning is to uh, find the rule for classification. That is true. 
but it is instrument for prediction. But I can say the goal of uh, machine learning is to to learn about conditional probability. So how God played use and he is he play what is probability for one, what is probability for another given situation. But for prediction I don't all right. Well I just uh, had a break. Got some <coughs> pork roll egg and cheese, which is the Dollar Tree. Got myself a new one dollar bag. This is my second backpack I bought. I could have brought that last one with me, but they're quite useful. And um, I went to the uh, deli and I got the um, end cuts, but I didn't get, take all of them this time. I only took the good ones, like the hard cheeses, not the American cheeses. I got some Asiago and I got all types of good stuff. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm thinking about conditional probabilities and I'm thinking about the hypergraph. So let's say I were to add some new nodes to the hypergraph, right? So first of all, Let's say I load in all the data from a file. <clears throat> so I could make an entry that says, this is all the data from a file. And I could put all the IDs of that node, all the IDs of that file in one node as an index. Right? Or I could say, these are all the entry points Or this is the first one, so I can chain through them. So then, <clears throat> it's like, how are you going to find these nodes? All right. So we're going to want to create some indexes so we can find things quickly. And then we want to make an index of indexes that we can search immediately. So we're saying now that we're going to create one node as the header. And we'll create that structure before we even go and create and add in all the data. And then every time we add data, we're going to have an indexing phase where we go in and we update all the indexes. <clears throat> and that's going to create new versions of those indexes. And how do we know when all the indexes are updated? How do we know when we processed all the nodes and at what time period? So we have this causal invariance, and I guess that requires us to rewrite <clears throat> the 
the indexes, but we don't want to duplicate all the data. So we might want to just create a new index with the new data and then have that point back to the old index. And then how do we know where to find the new index? Well, maybe we just put it at the end. Or maybe we have to search through everything. Or maybe we do just keep an index that's up to date and lock it. So this kind of gets into the question of causal and variability, what if it? It's like, well, how are we going to determine consistency of our index? Okay. So, now we could do lots of searching or we could just put the positions and we want to be able to find things by position. <clears throat> to be able to jump to them. And we don't really want them moving. We want those IDs to be stable over time. And if you uh, move the object, then you have to move all the things that reference it. So if we give them unique IDs, then we can move them any way we want. And... Um, we can search for them, we can create an index that just says this unique ID is found in this position. So I'm not really sure yet what we want to do. I think we should start with the easy idea where we just have Well, it turns out in Haskell, we can create pointers, IO refs, though I don't really want that because I want to be able to dump out the data at any time to disk. So we're going to have to think about this a little bit. Or we might just use an existing uh, graph store. But I'm not against deriving everything from scratch at this point. <clears throat> so. There are a lot of birds out there on that river. Let me get a shot of this.
So, so we're going to create basically, my idea was we create uh, samples. So we can create combinations of fields, right, and field values, for, like all types of combinations of them. And those would be our sample sets. And then for each of these combinations, we could store a list of the items that are in it, not just the count, but actual list of them. And then, we could uh, do some kind of set operation, like a bitmap operation, where you want to join multiple sets together, you could just use a bitmap. And layer them on top of each other. It's like this and this, this or this. And I guess the query optimizer of a database will do all of this for you. Yeah, I haven't thought about the whole database technology at this point. But I'm thinking about creating lots of indexes. So, if we have the, um, if we have these different sets, we could say, well, um, <clears throat> all of this set is contained in that set. So they're basically identical, meaning for every object in the one set, it's contained in that other set. And we can get into the relationship between all the different combinations and sets, right? So we have n sets, we have n squared relationships divided by two for self-similar sets, you know, same set, minus one or minus n, because sets don't relate to each other, and don't have, they're, they're the same, there's an identity, so it's like that triangle distance map, and then we could um, show which of these sets is related in which way to the other side. Right? 
Um, which one is wholly contained by the other? Which one is a subset of the other? Well, that's the same thing. You know, which one could be an intersection of another so we can start generalizing those relationships. And you'd find, like, at the top, like, objects with a node type. That's, like, number one. And then you could say, well, objects with a node type whose value is this. So then we're going to get into the issue of um, which one is... Uh, <clears throat> morning. Which one is contained by which one? And uh, we might get into the individual row values. So not only indexing, creating a set for each column, if it exists or not, but creating a set for each column that has a certain value. Uh, we only want to do that for columns that have large cardinality, uh, smaller cardinalities. So we're going to have to analyze that. So we're going to say, look at these sets and um, create an index for values or for the top n values. So sample them. And we can start with top 10 and then move to top 100 as needed. just create a bucket for the rest. And then we're going to see some have a one-to-one -one relationship and some have a one-to-n relationship, etc, etc, etc. And some have an n-to-one relationship. So we start classifying the fields based upon that information. And in the end, each of these fields can be modeled as a function. Each field is a function that maps from one domain to one range. From elements in one set to elements in another set.
and we have all the data for them. all the data for them. We know exactly what's in there. So really we also want to say like which functions share the same input sets or the same output sets. So we want to start classifying the domains and the ranges. And in the end we're going to create some kind of ontology. But I really want to do this automatically and apply deeper and deeper analysis routines to it. I just wonder how we're going to... Uh, how to manage all this. Well... Okay, so that was our little interlude. Let's get back to Vlad. I think I've, uh, <coughs> I think I've, uh, processed this food. <clears throat> okay, so he's going to ask him about the principles of unreasonable effectiveness. And Vladimir's just going to stick to his, um, original statements that he's trying to make here, so... He says, some people say that math is the language that use God. And what he's really saying is, some people say that math is the language of God, or the language that God uses. Now this is where I wished Lex would have helped him out. And then he says that scientists look at mathematical equations to understand reality, and Machine learning does that as well. If they are talking about conditional probabilities, then it is something that you can understand and not just imagination or illusion. So again, he's trying to make the case for conditional probabilities as being realism and everything else in machine learning to be instrumentalism, just predictions of what it can describe some people saying that mass is language which use god so i believe and speak to god or use god or use god use god yeah so i believe that this article about effectiveness unreasonable effectiveness of mass is that if you're looking at mathematical structures, they know something about reality. And the most scientists from natural science, they're looking on equation and trying to understand reality. So the same in machine learning. If you trying very carefully look on all equations, which define conditional probability. You can understand something about reality more than from your fantasy. 
So now he's going to double down on his point of fantasy. And he's going to call it all intuition fantasy. So he's going to say that he just did a lecture on least squares. And when people first hear it, they're thinking about all these different ways they could improve on it. But if you do the math, then you will discover He's saying that it's not the, the the observation points, it's the residuals that's left over that are important. Now, I don't pretend to understand this, but he's just saying that your intuitive viewpoint when going into this algorithm will create illusions. And these illusions are distractions. And those distractions <clears throat> will be replaced And to come to the understanding is hard and requires a long time. And you have to do the work, basically. This is what he's saying. And this is what Wolfram is also saying, that there's things you can't skip. You actually have to go through and do the work of the math to understand it. And only then will it make sense. And the, these axioms and these theories that seem so simple are so hard to discover. And uh, <clears throat> so this is kind of what I'm trying to get at as well. I'm trying to wrap my head around in this whole topic of um, computation is that um, if we're looking at someone else's program, that we might have to just do the work to understand it. We might actually have to model the program down to the last bit to actually understand it, so put in a huge amount of effort so that introspection of that algorithm is not necessarily possible automatically and that we're going to have to actually dig deeper and deeper into it to understand it. And that digging, of course, we can assist it with tools. It's going to have to be led by a human and not by a computer. And it's going to have mistakes. And it's going to have effort that's lost. Illusions that are shattered. Theories that are discarded. And that's what I see is happening with me the breaking of illusions, the breaking of preconceptions, scaffolding that has been used to build the building is then discarded and the building stands. Temporary structures. And I think Lex is going to also say, well, don't we need these temporary structures? These intermediate errors But, um, yeah, this, this whole thing with Vlad and with Wolfram really shook me in the last couple of days. And I really had to rethink everything. Make me question everything.
<clears throat> so let's play the clip. Your fantasy. So math can reveal the simple underlying principles of reality, perhaps. You know what means simple? It is very hard to discover them. But then when you discover them and look at them, you see how beautiful they are. And, and it is surprising why people did not see that before you look looking on equation and derive it from equations. For example, I talked yesterday mm -hmm. about least square method. Mm -hmm. And people had a lot of fantasy how to improve least square method. But if you look going step by step by solving some equations, you suddenly will get some term which after thinking, you understand that it describes position of observation point. In least square method, we throw out a lot of information. We don't look in composition of point of observations. We're looking only on residuals. Mm -hmm. But when you understood that, that's a very simple idea, but which not too simple to understand. And you can derive this just from equations. So some simple algebra, a few steps will take you to something surprising that when you think about, yes. you so the, And that is proof that human intuition not to reach and very primitive and it does not see very simple situations so uh, let me take a step back in general in, in, yes right uh, but what about human okay so now we're getting into the um, number seven I mean clip eight seven or eight basically he's saying now like I mentioned that all intuition is false. There's only axioms that have been proven true. And he's kind of dismissing, I mean, we have to understand his point of view of a Soviet, of a materialist, of a Marxist. Um, there is no religion, there's no soul. There's no spark of humanity. There's only the brutal realism of the, um, revolution right religion is opium for the people so you have to kind of understand the context of which where this guy's coming from and in russia it's pretty cold and pretty depressing so he's carrying a certain amount of that with him you know um so we're going to forgive him for that because we're hopeless romantics and following our intuition and touchy-feely and safe spaces and all that, according to I me, mean, from his perspective, oh my god. But I like, I like the way he's seeing it and I think it's good to see it from his perspective as well. And we have to be open to other perspectives, to paradigm shifts. We have to be able to question ourselves, question our values, and withstand a harsh battery of skepticism and see what's left. What's left after you tear down all the walls, all the scaffolding? What do you got?
All right, let's do it. When, as opposed to intuition, ingenuity, um, the moments of brilliance. So uh, are you so, uh, do you have to be so hard on human intuition? Are there moments of brilliance in human intuition that can leap ahead of math and then the math will catch up? I don't think so. I think that the, the best human intuition, it is putting in axioms. And then it is technical. Way See where the axioms it. take you. Yeah. But if they correctly take axioms, but it axiom polished during generations of scientists. And this is integral wisdom. So <laughs> that's beautifully put. But if you uh, maybe look at when you when you think of Einstein and uh, special relativity, uh, what is the role of imagination coming first there in the moment of discovery? So he's going to say that all features and all um, <clears throat> deep learning are just illusions. That intuition is meaningless. And that only careful examination of mathematical formula and no imagination is necessary. And he doesn't know how Einstein derived his formula and doesn't care. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's quite the uh, radical uh, guy, um, but he's really great. And he's saying that, um, I think he's saying survey that by following these principles you will create a survey which goes much deeper than any um, intuition can go that intuition is just an interpretation maybe a simple interpretation and i think what we're getting here now what we're getting at now is the simple idea that <clears throat> the simple idea that um, intuition or interpretation, like first level understanding, um, is just too simple to comprehend the depth of the problem at hand, that we cannot apprehend it just by looking at it. We actually have to run it. And this is also what um, Wolfram was getting at. You can't jump over this step. You cannot, do not pass, go, do not collect $200, go straight to jail. Like you're not gonna get by this without actually doing the work. There's no other way. There's no intuition available. And I guess when you do the math, you will build a deep neural model internalizing that which will allow you to then do that step so maybe it's just an instructions for creating a neural model that can only be done by training and if you don't have that model um, you can't skip over it you need to understand these probabilities they're essential probabilities you can't skip over.
that's beautifully put. But if you uh, maybe look at when you when you think of Einstein and uh, special relativity, uh, what is the role of imagination coming first there in the moment of discovery of an idea? So there's obviously a mix of math and out-of-the-box imagination there. That's I don't know. Whatever I did, I exclude any imagination. Because whatever I saw in machine learning that come from imagination, like features, mm-hmm. like deep learning, mm-hmm. they are not relevant to the problem. When you're looking very carefully from mathematical equations, you're deriving very simple theory, which goes far beyond theoretically than whatever people can imagine. Because it is not good fantasy. Yeah. It is just interpretation. It is just fantasy, but it is not what you need. You don't need any imagination to derive, uh, say, main principle of machine learning. So he's going to go on more about the um, intuition being false and interpretations being false. He gives the example of the guy who invented the microscope. Hey guys. It gives the example of the guy who invented the microscope and says how he kind of interpreted the, what, the blood cells as being kings and queens fighting with each other. And the, the people didn't have the ability to check it. They just had to believe what he said. And um, that was just his interpretation and it was wrong. And this is where he's kind of basing his ideas on. It, when you think about learning and intelligence, maybe thinking about the human brain and trying to describe mathematically the process of learning, uh, that is something like what happens in the human brain. Do you think we have the tools currently? Do you think we will ever have the tools to try to describe that process of learning? You, it is not description of what's going on. It is interpretation. It is your interpretation. Your vision can be wrong. You know, when guy invent microscope, mm-hmm. Levin Gook, for the first time, only he got this instrument and nobody, only he kept secret about this microscope. But he wrote a report in London Academy of Science. And in his report, when he looking at the blood, he looked everywhere, on the water, on the blood, on the spin. But he described blood like fight mm-hmm. between queen and king. Mm-hmm. So he saw blood cells, red cells, and he imagined that it is army fighting each other. And it was his interpretation of situation. And he sent this report in Academy of Science. They very carefully look because they believe that he's right. He's right. He saw something. Yes. But he gave wrong interpretation. And I believe the same can happen to his brain. All right. So now he's going to introduce the idea of, of invariance. And he's going to say that if you have invariance, things that are always true at all times, that they will reduce your uh, data sets 
by a hundredfold. So, in the training. So that's interesting. And a good teacher will give the students invariance. One day with a good teacher is good as 1,000 days of study, intensive study. So, <clears throat> and I'm thinking that um, if we have all of these software pieces that are working together, like I said, we have a closed system, we have the editor, we have a compiler, we have a shell, an operating system, we have scripting languages, we have all of these different tools all working together in concert. And if we accept those as invariant, as fixed, then we could probably solve a lot of open questions and collect deeper statistical models and create invariants so that understanding the system will become easier. And if we introduce the system compiling itself or reflecting upon itself, then that will also um, introduce more invariants so that there's actually no unknowns except how it will be used in the future. But for this particular case, everything can be solved except, well, we don't know how it's going to be used. But if we say it's only used in this way, then we can discard everything that's not used for that system and create a base core system. So the core system is used to build itself. <clears throat> and everything else can be built by adding on pieces to that core. But I think that would at least be a faster and stronger core. We could optimize it and make it faster. And we could say, okay, well, we have all the different versions of itself over time, and we want to be able to compile all of them, so we're not going to make it completely invariant. We're going to go through different... Well, it's going to be invariant over all those times, but it won't be completely fixed. So the core system will definitely be growing over time and evolving. can happen with brain. With because brain, yeah. the most important part, you know, I believe in human language. In some proverb is so much wisdom. For example, people say that it is better than a thousand days of diligent studies one day with great teacher. But if it, I will ask you what teacher does, nobody knows. And that is intelligence. And but we know from history and uh, now from from mass and machine learning 
that teacher can do a lot. So what, from a mathematical point of view, is the great teacher? I don't know. That's an open question. No, uh, but we can uh, say what teacher can do. He can introduce some uh, invariants, some predicate for creating invariants. How he doing it, I don't know, because teacher knows reality and can describe from this reality a predicate invariants. But we know that when you're using invariant, you can decrease number of observations hundred times. That's all right. Now he's going to talk about strong convergence and weak convergence as a new theory in machine learning, and that weak convergence uses predicates or invariants to um, to reduce the training time. And he was giving the example before, which I cut out, which is like the piano teacher told the student to play like a butterfly. And he's like, what, what does this mean? It's like, well, this is a predicate. This is an invariant. And then he's going to go on to the English saying of if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and swims like a duck, it's probably a duck. And he's going to say these are invariants that are chosen to be significant. And later he'll say, well, jumping like a duck or playing piano like a duck doesn't contain any information. So those aren't good invariants. So selecting the invariants is also important. And that's the job of the teacher. Information. I believe that it is sort of predicate, but I don't know. That Some is exactly what, what intelligence in machine learning should be. Yes. Because the rest is just mathematical technique. I think that uh, what was discovered recently is that there is two type, two mechanisms of learning. Uh, one called strong convergence mechanism mm. and weak convergence mechanism. Before, people use only one convergence. In weak convergence mechanism, you can use predicate. That's what play like butterfly. Mm -hmm. And uh, it will immediately affect your playing. You know, this, there is English proverb, great. Mm -hmm. If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quack like a duck, then it is probably duck. Yes. All right. So Vladimir is really struggling in this segment to articulate himself. And I had to listen to it a couple of times. So let me give you what I think he's going to say. Now, I skipped over this whole discussion of ducks. <clears throat> and I don't know if Lex is getting all this. I know it's really difficult to understand. But basically what he's saying now, what I understand, is that we have a huge selection of functions. Um, <clears throat> machine learning has tons and tons and tons of functions that are, can be used to recognize things and understand things and model things. And... <clears throat> You start with the first invariant, the predicate, looks like a duck, and you remove all the functions that are not contributing to fulfilling this predicate. So the ones that are definitely not relevant or irrelevant to that function. So things that are looking for 
horses will just be removed. So all the functions that look for horses are removed, etc., etc., etc. And you're left with only the functions that look like a duck or ones that are not known to be related to things that are looking. So you're culling your function list. Then you look at quacks like a duck. And you use a quacking sound to remove all the functions for neighing and talking and crows and frogs and stuff. All the sounds that are not relevant, you remove them and then swims like a duck. And by the end of it, you've reduced your function set greatly just through these invariants. So you use the invariants to select your functions and reduce your function scope, your scope of things you get to search. And you're searching for the best function to model the looking for the duck because you have a huge computational space to search through. This is what I understood. And that helps us understand the essence of duck. Yeah. How far are we from integrating uh, predicates? No, you know that when when you consider complete theory of machine learning, so what it does, you have a lot of functions, and then you you you're talking. It looks like a duck. You see your training data. From training data, you recognize like uh, expected duck should look. Mm -hmm. Then you remove all functions which does not look like you think it should look from training data. So you decrease amount of function from which we, you pick up one. Then you give a second predicate and again decrease, decrease the set of function. And after that you, you pick up the best function you can find. It is standard machine learning. So why you need not too many examples? Okay. So Vlad is now going to tell us about the admissible versus good functions and that we have an infinite set of functions that are admissible and we can reduce the capacity of the set we're, we're trying to reduce the amount of functions that have to be searched with training data to a smaller and smaller set so I guess he's we're talking about the computational space here we're searching the computational space and we're trying to narrow that space down. First we admit a whole bunch of them and then we're going to evaluate these functions and reduce the set of admissibles down to a set of good using predicates and training data. The more predicates we have, the more, what do you call them? Invariance the better, and then we introduce the variance. All right. Because your predicates aren't very good? <laughs> or, or yeah, you're that's, not... that means the predicate very good. Yeah. Because every predicate is invented to decrease admissible set of functions. So you talk about admissible set of functions, and you talk about good functions. So what makes a good function? So admissible set of function is set of function which has 
small capacity or small diversity, small VC dimension exactly, mm-hmm. which contain good function inside. So by the way, for people who don't know, VC, uh, you're the V in the VC. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, so uh, how would you describe to a layperson what VC theory is? Uh, how would you describe so VC? So you have a machine, <coughs> so machine capable to pick up one function from the admissible set of function. Mm-hmm. But set of admissible function can be big. So it contain all continuous functions and it's useless. You don't have so many examples to pick up function. But it can be small. Small, uh, we call it capacity, but maybe it's better called diversity. So not very different function in the set. It's infinite set of function, but not very diverse. So it is small VC dimension. When VC dimension is small, you need not... So now he's going to confirm the idea of creating a set of admissible functions that have a small VC dimension, and then using training data to pick out a good function from there. But he's saying that this is relatively new and he's going to go on to say something about that I don't understand about classical learning and all that. But we're going to skip over that because that's not really what we care about at this point, the semantics of what's new and what's old. Okay, people, this is it for today. Um, change in plans. I'm not going to be able to continue with this particular episode, but I'm going to throw in everything else I've got and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. So following this are just some clips from yesterday that I didn't publish. Good morning, people of Earth. This is Mike, Hacker Mike, your host on today's journey. It's 4.11 in the morning and it started to warm up. I think I'm a little bit overdressed. I had to take my hat off because I was sweating. I might have to take my sweatshirt off later too. But you can always take off a sweatshirt. But if you don't have one, you're screwed. <clears throat> I watched this documentary on the guy who walked across Alaska with a canoe. So he walked and canoed across Alaska. And um, well, he had some help because at one point his canoe was uh, dropped off after he'd walked a while. And another point, someone airdropped him some supplies. But uh, it was quite the story. Quite the story. And along the way, he found all of these graves and skeletons of the people before him. So, in abandoned forts and abandoned houses. Whew. 
So I'm listening to um, the first Lex Friedman interview with Stephen Wolfram. And it really hit me. Hit me hard. His principle of computational equivalence smacked me upside the head. So I wanted to share that with you. <clears throat> you know, we went over some of his ideas, but we never really understood all of them. But I think I got this one now. He was saying that Gödel showed that you could encode the algorithm into integers, right? This is like your brain fuck program where you'll have like a jump statement, an addition statement, and an if statement type of situation, and you encode all of that into numbers, and you compile all of these equations into one large integer, and then you can run it. <clears throat> and, uh, and by the way, you can also write the statement in that system that says the entire system is false. Which is his coup de gras or Kaup de Gracie. So, um, and then he went on to say that the Turing system is equivalent to the Gödel system, and the Lambda calculus of Church is equivalent to the Gödel system in that they can express the same algorithms with different, let's say, encoding. And uh, then he was trying to say that the, the Wolfram uh, numbers that he found, the uh, cellular autonoma, will also perform Turing machine calculations. So they're equivalent. So it doesn't matter. And he's trying to say that the brain is also equivalent to a Turing machine, equivalent to a a Gödel interpreter. <clears throat> so that. So that uh, they're all basically, any program that runs on one can run on another. And um, it's all just details of execution. If it's encoded in this format, you just have to compile it for this system or compile it for that system. And you can transform a program that runs in one program to another. 
so that it's all the same. So that's really what just slammed into me at this point. Hit me like a ton of bricks. So whether or not the human brain is equivalent to a Turing machine, <clears throat> that is definitely an open question, I would say. But I definitely understand his point of view now much better. So, I have been thinking about all these different forms, all these different modalities of computation, and it was clear to me that obviously things are reducible to more basic forms. But now I understand him much better. So I think I can put my current ideas into that frame of reference. Well, first of all, it's not just about computability. It's also about understandability like how hard it is for another person to understand what's going on thinking a lot here 
Well, I have to say that, you know, other things are distracting me. But basically, trying to understand the structure of the code and actually understand, put it into, let's say, translate it into more human terms of what's going on in any given one of these representations of general computability. Like, how can reverse engineer you know, these universal or equivalent computation systems, right? Like, how can you understand what's going on in them? <clears throat> so you might translate it into like some kind of pseudocode. Like, oh, here's a for loop, right? Here's an iterator. Here's an incrementer, right? Into things that you know and understand. And then bigger building blocks. On top of that, and in the end, you might determine that this code was produced by this compiler because a compiler will leave a certain signature as to how it lays out things. Yeah, and, and there's definitely lots of optimizations that go on, multiple layers. Boy, I'm really getting lost in my brain again. Yeah. So 
given someone else's message, it might be very difficult to determine what it might be difficult to determine what the original intent was. Let's start with that. Someone wrote some program, and from that program, lots of things happened. And then to try and reverse engineer it would be very difficult. So then the question becomes, Now, we were listening to the LLVM. I was listening to the LLVM. <clears throat> I say we, because the team stream of random, I posted that also in the chat on Telegram. But I don't think anyone else was really listening to it, so sorry about the we. It would be nice to have a we in our podcast. I guess if I'm not so lost all the time in my brain, people might want to come on. Okay. This is going to try and be a recovery from almost an hour of talking and getting lost in my mind. I've done quite the um, walk this morning and I got quite lost in my head. So instead of actually um, sharing with you guys all this, I guess I could just tack it on to the end of the uh, podcast you know, for people who really want to torture themselves, they could actually listen to it all. But um, I think I owe it to my fans to give you a, a summary, an overview. And also to say, we just don't know. I guess you're going to hear that a lot from me. So let's talk about that. So we're listening to Wolfram and um, Fried, Friedman um, talking about uh, what is knowable, what are the limits of knowledge and the limits of computation. And uh, Wolfram was saying that there's a fundamental equivalence between all systems of computation where you have the limits of knowability and decidability. 
if you present any system if you present any system of uh, computation with a another system of computation it's just going to basically create a virtual machine and this virtual machine will act in an unpredictable manner because that virtual machine could be fed another virtual machine ad nauseum um, and you never know what program it's going to actually execute this is like the halting problem and he's saying that all these systems are equivalent so it doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what system you're using for execution if it's the lambda calculus, if it's a Turing machine, if it's a bytecoder interpreter, if it's a Python interpreter, or C++ compiler, or machine, it doesn't matter. Um, in the end, because all these systems are going to be equivalent to each other in terms of <coughs> not halting and not being able to figure out. And we do see this endless nesting of things going on until we get to the point of exploitation, which we learned about, where you're constructing a weird machine by manipulating the inputs to create an unintended behavior of a Turing machine, which you can then program to do whatever you want. And then that's in control of the attacker. Now, I was listening to this other guy who was the, um, the, lib uh, the communist turned liberal, uh, is it Eisenman, on the Tob Woods show. And basically he was saying that if you have a place where people say you could say anything you want, um, that generally means you can say only what they want you to say. Because what happens um, is a form of censorship occurs. And <clears throat> I've been listening to all types of uh, uh, liberal podcasts where there's, or communist socialist pop podcasts where they're saying, you know, they want to limit free speech in many different ways. Um, and I think there's a connection here. connection between limiting free speech and the halting problem where hmm. 
but I don't know what that connection is exactly. I just have an intuition that there is something. Now, I have this Russian guy who's being interviewed by Friedman. And he's going to say that our intuitions are basically useless. And only cold mathematics counts. Um, and his argumentation is hard to follow. And his language is hard to follow. So, I'm considering whether or not I'm going to clip it. Also, I have to wonder if I'm going to stay awake here. All right, we're going to try now to do some live coding. I guess you never worked with me in my office. So I'm setting up my Haskell stack. Boy, I'm going to have to edit this, really. So, um, this is going to be a sub, sub-human, um, episode. So I'm trying to work out some basic rules there. I'm thinking, if I have a, uh, an array of statements, the tree nodes, and I have a pointer. I could resolve a pointer to copying the referenced object in, and that's if there's no, um, if there's one uh, owner or certain types of fields. And then if um, there's a recursion, that's another form of um, resolving, where we're not going to resolve it, but I guess we could mark the nodes as being recursive of a certain form. And then if uh, multiple objects reference the same node, we don't want to copy and no duplication. So um, let's say we have a one to or n to one relationship. And if we have an n to n relationship, we're going to want um, to do something else as well. So we have a uh, association of some kind. So I think we're looking at types of cardinalities and relationships. 
Um, and I'm thinking there's different types of fields that are related to other types of fields. So, we'll see uh, what happens. I, I remember, I always thought that, um, okay, here, gotta go. Okay. This is the second try on today's podcast. After I went into another tailspin, getting lost in my mind, I decided to try a different recording tool again, going back to my good old open source audio recorder. So let's just try and grasp what Wolfram's trying to say again. He's saying that in order to experience something, we need to be updated. We need to be pinged in his discrete world. So if we're an observer in his graph, Until the input reaches us, it didn't happen. In order for their input to reach us, it has to go through all these steps. It doesn't matter what order that these steps are executed because there is no actual time in his system. Time just emerges as a sequence of updates. And it's perceived by <clears throat> things in his in the simulation when their updates occur and then they react, they send out signals, those signals arrive, someone else reacts, and the signals come back. But unless that's happening, In the simulation, everything would be frozen. Okay. So that's pretty interesting. And he's saying and they were grappling with a question if we are embedded in this system, how can we know the rules of the system? If we're embedded in the world, we're part of the world, how can we understand and know the rules of the world? So these are some pretty deep questions to think about. And I I tend to get lost in thought and go off into these tailspins. And also I end up thinking about other things. 
getting distracted, getting off topic. I'm walking uphill here, so I hope I'm not breathing too heavy. So, basically, what he's saying is that in terms of knowledge about these systems, we're not going to know anything unless we execute them. You have to run them to find out what they do. And he's also saying that his mathematical models are not the reality. They're just models. But he did give us an insight into the base representation. And he said it's just a list of tuples that define his hypergraph, and that's it. And there's no fixed size to the um <clears throat> to the tuples. They can be different sizes, and they just represent edges between that list of nodes. kind of neat um, and uh, I'm starting to think what would happen if I represented these tree structures I have as the um, hypergraph well they already are a form of a hypergraph where we could take all the different fields and assign orders to them. And the field's not present, we could put a zero in there. Or some kind of null. nasty kind of uh, graph and I hate to uh, just think out loud here but hey even my worst episode got three listens I don't know who the hell's listening. I doubt it's human. But, uh...
was thinking if we had these rules for rewriting. You could create larger and larger tuples up to a certain point. And at what point does the whole graph become embedded? Well, so let's just say you group everything together up to the point where you get a recursive function. Or you get some kind of recursive loop. So let's say you have five elements in that loop. Well, you have to put those five elements in a loop in one node and call it, let's say, recursive loop. But eventually, you might get into a situation where either you'll put everything into one node then eventually you're going to reach the point where you end up putting everything in one node and you're kind of back to square one where everything is depending on everything else and it's really meaningless to uh, to group things together okay so you have a group of everything a group of nothing to group of everything Yeah, so I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking really the, um, I'm thinking that, um, to have to uh, stop at certain points of recursion and not group them together because eventually you're going to um, you're going to create some kind of humongous node of everything so let's not do recursion Now, even just the marking of nodes, so this is kind of getting into some really tricky areas here, which I can't quite fathom.
So let's just say that we're going to have to actually try it out and play around with it. And that we really can't think our way through it, just like Wolfram said. Well, the other idea I had is that we could mark these nodes as being recursive, put little danger flags on them. Um, okay. So then, on the macro scale, we talked about creating a closed system. So, a description of everything. Okay. So, let's just say I install my uh, Linux machine. And then, I look at the causal graph of everything that had to happen for that Linux machine to be installed, and I have all the uh, source code, and equivalently I have all the uh, descriptions getting into equivalence here, okay? If I've got the source code, I need a compiler to compile it. And if I have the source code for the compiler, I don't have the compiler itself. How would I bootstrap that compiler? Right? Now, what we're trying to get at here with the um, tree structures is that if I transform my program into these tree structures, the compiler turns out to be much simpler. I think we can bootstrap a compiler based on crunching down these tree structures if we have enough of them, following simple rules. So this is what we hope to learn from Wolfram. And If we if we have enough of that data, 
you have enough tree structures that cover all of the um, things needed to run a system. So I have a running system here, and over there I have all the tree structures that describe that system. And then all the computation needed to produce it. And the um, mappings from source to binary. Intermediate steps in between. It's going to be pretty freaking huge. It's like, what is the memory? How much memory would you need to compile all the source files for all the systems in parallel? and not garbage collect anything. We never had to free up any memory. And then, how could we compress that stuff down? Because in the end, listen, I'm going to have to edit this show here. But in the end, if we have to Once we have all the data, then we're going to have all the operations that connect those bits of data. And if it's a self-hosted system, and the compiler has compiled itself, three stages
So compiler compiles itself to three stages. Well, the first stage is use whatever compiler you have available. And then you use that final compiler to compile everything else. And let's say you have an embedded system. So the system's embedded, it cannot hold all the information on board. Memory's a premium. So we need external memory. So we're going to have the uh, PC or build system over here. And the embedded system over here and the description of the build system and all the execution and let's say the sampling of all the registers at every point of time is on a third system the massive system. But at some point we have to stop sampling and just say, the third system that holds all the data we really don't want to We don't want um, all the information 
So we don't want to store every uh, storage operation. Can't audit every audit record, right? So eventually, once something happens, <clears throat> we store one audit record of that, but we don't need to audit the fact that the audit was written, at least not in the same system. thinking about work again, damn it. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get to this. So in the end, In the end, we're going to have a hard time to transcribe all the memory, especially if the algorithms are running in loops and searching for things and iterating over the data multiple times. Then we might have multiple copies of the same data in memory. Now. We could say, okay, well, we're going to compress that down. But if we end up permuting over all the data, how are we going to compress the permutations? And if in the end, we might just write down an actual operation was performed to permute and not actually store all the um, the steps so we don't want to store all the memory of everything
so there you go. You might just have to uh, execute this stuff and try and not be able to think through it all ahead of time. So we might have to go back to some kind of functional description and just say, as long as as long as there is uh, some functional description. We know the inputs and outputs. We can calculate any step of the way if we need to. Then we're good. Now, if we get, if that function is then some kind of Turing machine, where it produces indeterminate behavior, and we don't know what it is, I think we're being back to the original problem here. Okay. So, this is a difficult topic, and yes, this podcast will need editing, but um, I'll just put a warning sign on it and say, listen guys, don't listen to it for now, because yes, we're going to have to edit, but I need to go through this, so we're going through. So let's go over it one more time. If we have a system if we have a system of auditing every single bit of execution of a computer so we have full observability closed system, let's say we're going to compile a hello world, run it, on an embedded system, so we have our cross compiler, We have an emulator. To run it. The final Hello World. 
or whatever it is, turn on the blinking light. We have the um, source code for the compiler. We do the multi-stage build. machine to run the emulator. We have all the source code of that. We've got our shell and our basically we have our entire <coughs> let's say Linux working environment. We have our target machine emulator with source code, let's say. We have an actual target machine. It doesn't really matter at this point. My point is that if we look at all the steps in the compilation, we look at all the memory produced and we were to try and spend years let's say to reduce <clears throat> the memory size of all the data we collect on the compilation we're going to see that a lot of the steps are derived from inputs So we don't need to store all that information. Like the guy said in the LLVM, we might have to have some bookkeeping, some auditing and tracking, like what came from where, some kind of traceability or auditability. <clears throat> and this also ties into the reproducible builds project. Can we make our builds absolutely reproducible? Can we account for every byte in the program? Prove where it came from. Like how much information do we need for that? And I don't think it's all of the memory. It's going to be a subset of memory. And it's going to be driven from the source code. <clears throat> now, let's go back to the tree graph. So the first part of the compilation is to transform the source code into the tree graph. And if I layer them all on top of each other from all the compilations, let's say I put the, um, some context information about how it was run, when it was run, as a tuple. And we'll see there's a lot of duplication 
Let's see if we can remove all these duplicates. And we can press it down. How much can we compress this tree graph? Removing duplicates part of compression. Like contains no actual information. So let's say we can spend some time to actually reduce the size of this whole thing. And then by doing that we actually find some meaningful structure in the compression. This is kind of where we're getting at. Can we find a meaning in the um, compression? Can we make a semantic type compression that preserves the meaning that is so beautiful to look at? We talked about bigger and bigger blocks. Also, kind of like, can we look for commonalities and reduce them? Can we reduce them? Okay. So if we apply the idea of Wolfram and say, well, we have to compute, we don't know. Well, I think if we computed the hello world, then we know that we can do that. And if all the steps are reproducible, step is re 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 reducible. To go from source to binary. And And I guess if we created 
layers of computation. But this is the computation needed to compile the compiler. Right. This is the, what we need to compile all the other modules in the system. This is what we need to compile the kernel. This is what um, expanding list of <clears throat> parts. And you need a bunch of libraries in order to compile a compiler. that sits on top of it. Defined using those primitives. What would that look like? just getting into you know some crazy good old system some brain fog or is it really going to be meaningful so what's a meaningful representation everything to bits is not meaningful. 
being able to fit on one page is meaningful. So from a human perspective, how many pages do we need Can we compress the system down to a couple of pages? That build on top of each other in terms of concepts for the human to understand and learn from. This kind of gets into the um, question of representation. chunks or really is it the recursion that's key that our minds don't have a problem with the recursion, grasping it.
so, so, so. thinking about all types of stuff. We're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> 